How does Jesus challenge our perspective of him? That's the question we're discussing today on the Hero of the Story presented by The Gospel Project. Thanks for joining us for today's episode of the Hero of the Story, a podcast to help you explore the big story and big truths of scripture. I'm Aaron Armstrong, and with me, as always, is Brian Dembozik. So, Brian, we are finally here in our survey of the New Testament, specifically our survey of the Gospels. We are finally at the the Jesus' entry into Jerusalem, the Passion Week, as uh, as we often call it. So, there's a lot of stuff that's going on, isn't there? Yeah, our next several episodes are going to be focused just on this final week, and we're not even going to hit everything. We're going to skip over parts of it. Uh, you know, I was looking through John's gospel earlier and just noticing how much real estate he he dedicates just to the events of the final week, understandably. Um, mm-hmm. A lot of important things are going to be happening, of course. Uh, a lot of, of uh, explanations of what has happened up to this point. Um, and some, like we're going to see today, foreshadowing of the events that are just right at hand, just mere days from what you're studying any any given passage in this in this area. And I think that's what's so helpful. You know, we've talked about this so many times, Aaron, that the Gospels are not written in chron- chronological order. Uh, the writers bounced around as they saw fit to, to serve their purpose of teaching what is true about Jesus. But when we study these events of the final week of Jesus, especially in more of a chronological order, it really helps us understand what happened and why. And so that's why I'm looking forward to walking through this with you over the next, what, six or seven episodes, I think it is. Yeah, something like that. We're going to be we're going to be talking about this for a few weeks, which is which is really great. Um, You know, it's not very often that we think about think about it from from that perspective. We we tend to lump the whole week into, you know, certainly in our preaching calendars traditionally around Easter time, we do two Sundays. Yeah. In most in most American churches. And um and and so for us to be able to go through and just bit by bit block, uh walk through this is going to be very exciting. Um and I think going to certainly do my heart some good. So so I'm looking forward to it. Well, th- that's important. Your heart needs some good. It, it sure does. It sure does. It's been a Thursday. So um, <laughs> in light of that, how about you set up some context for this passage that we are going to be discussing, which is Luke 19, 28 through 48? Yeah, I, as we just kind of talked about, we're going to be looking through uh, these passages uh, from from all four Gospels. Um but be looking at this final week of, of Jesus. So I, I thought it would be helpful that every time we are talking about the context for these next episodes ahead, we just kind of review where it is in in relation to the final week, this this, this week, Sunday to Sunday, basically, um, time frame. And so this one begins that week. Uh, this is Sunday morning, the beginning of Passion Week. Again, the final week of Jesus' earthly ministry before his death. We know that he will be on earth about 40 more days after his resurrection. So technically, it's not the final week of his time on earth, uh, but his ministry leading up to his death and resurrection. 
And just in case uh, anybody's not familiar with it, we, we call this the Passion Week because passion comes from a Latin word meaning to suffer. So this is the week that leads up to the suffering of, of Jesus. In Scripture, this is the only event recorded that happens on Sunday. Uh, all we have really given to us is the uh, triumphal entry. Doesn't mean it's the only thing that happened, of course. It just means it's all that uh, the writers saw fit to to provide for us. So there is a little bit of interesting. What happened? Did Jesus uh, enter Jerusalem and literally turn around and leave again? Uh, did he enter Jerusalem and, and did he teach? What did he do? Did he observe? We don't know. But this event, of course, is the highlight of this day and just begins um, really a contrast of Jesus going into the city with praise and at the near the end of the week on Friday, he goes out of the city to be rejected and crucified. So there, there are these really important bookends that we're seeing here. So that's what we're going to be talking about in, uh, in our discussion today from Luke 19. Mm-hmm. Very cool. Very cool. All right. So let's, uh, let's do ourselves a favor and actually read the passage and then we can, and then we'll start talking about it. So. Here is Luke 19, 28 through 48 from the CSB. When he said these things, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. And as he appro- approached Beth, uh, Bethphage and Bethany at, a pla- at the place called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of the disciples and said, go into the village ahead of you. And as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there on which no one has ever sat, untie it and bring it. And if anyone says to you, why are you untying it? Say this, the Lord needs it. So those who were, who were sent left and found it just as he had told them. Um, And if it wasn't clear at this point, the he is Jesus, of course. Continuing on to verse 33, as they were untying the colt, its owners said to them, why are you untying the colt? The Lord needs it, they said. Then they brought it to Jesus, and after their and after throwing their clothes on the colt, they helped Jesus get on it. As he was going along, they were spreading their clothes on the road. Now he now he came near the path down the Mount of Olives, and the whole crowd of the disciples began to praise God joyfully with a loud voice for all the miracles they had seen. Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest heaven. Some of the Pharisees from the crowd told him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered them, I tell you, if they were to keep silent, the stones would cry out. And as he approached and saw the city, he wept for it, saying, If you knew this day, uh, if you knew this day, what would bring peace? But now it is hidden from your eyes. For the days will come on will come on you when your enemies will build a barricade around you, surround you, and hem you in on every side. They will crush you and your children among you to the ground, and they will not leave one stone on another in your midst because they because you did not recognize the time when God visited you. He went into the temple and began to throw out those who were selling, and he said, It is written, My house will be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of thieves. Every day he went teaching, he was teaching in the temple. The chief priests, the scribes, and the leaders of the people were looking for a way to kill him, but they could not find a way to do it because all the people were captivated by what they heard. So, a lot of details there. 
Um, it, well, yes. I mean, really, you have what we kind of look in in isolation many times. We we look at the triumphal entry, and then we look at Jesus weeping over Jerusalem, kind of as a separate, and then the cleansing of the temple. Uh, but they are fused together here uh, by Luke, and and I think as we start looking at this and asking, you know, the questions we need to ask as we read through this and study it and prepare to to share it with somebody we're discipling or teach on it or, or whatever the context is, I think one of the first most pressing questions is one that we might take for granted and we should not. And it is, why did Jesus ride on a donkey? Uh, we see this in verse 30. It takes a lot of, of the real estate of that triumphal entry narrative leading into it. Uh, you know, it, you look at it, about half of that feels like it's talking about this donkey and then half of it is the actual arrival itself. So what is so significant about this? Well, the main reason, of course, is that this is fulfilling Messianic prophecy. Uh, the Messianic prophecy of Zechariah 9.9 reads this way, Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout in triumph, daughter Jerusalem. Look, your king is coming to you. He is righteous and victorious, humble, and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. So this is clearly... Uh, pointing toward that fulfilled prophecy that Jesus is riding in on this donkey and in doing so, declaring that he is the Messiah, he is the king the people looked for. Now, some people, they look at this fulfillment of, of prophecy with a little bit of a side eye uh, because it's manufactured. You know, some of the prophecies, they say, oh, that's a good prophecy that Jesus was born in Bethlehem because he couldn't do anything to control that. So I'm going to give that a lot of credibility. But this one, I'm not going to give it as much credibility because Jesus clearly manufactured it. He knew that prophecy. That's why he chose the, the cult. Well, it's true that this was manufactured, but that's the important part. Because some people like to, to claim that Jesus never claimed himself to be the Messiah. That he never claimed to be the leader of, of his people. He, he was kind of forced into that by his followers. This explodes that. Clearly, Jesus in this action is declaring definitively, and he said it. This is not the only place, of course. We have many different places. But here he is acting as the Messiah, basically declaring to the people of Jerusalem, I am the king. I'm the Messiah. I'm arriving. So this is really important. Also, don't miss Zechariah clues us in the humility here. Um, mostly conquering kings would return to their city of origin on a, on a white horse, a stallion, you know, this impressive creature. But Jesus didn't do that here. He's going to do it one day, read Revelation. But here he is entering Jerusalem not as the conquering king, but as the suffering servant. So a posture of humility. So the humble king, the servant king, the suffering servant is arriving, and he wants people to recognize that claim. Another question that that comes up in this passage um, is is this little detail that we see in verse thirty six, which is the people are placing their clothes, and in John's gospel, it also mentions that they placed palm branches on the ground. Why did they do this? And so, and and so, really, this is why. So, ultimately, this was was confirming Jesus' position as king. It was saying, this is, this is our Lord. And so with the branches, it was symbolizing royalty and victory. And so we, we, we see this happen in the Old Testament as well. With spreading clothing, um, this was a way to 
honor dignitaries. I mean, you see this in 2 Kings 9.13 with, um, with uh, Jehu there as well. So all of this is, is this saying, Jesus is the king that the people were waiting for. And that's a detail that's really important, particularly when we get to Jesus' encounter with Pilate, because he doesn't deny, because Jesus never once denies his kingship at all. He just says he's not a king like, like human kings. Yeah. And so just continuing this interplay. So you have Jesus basically riding in the donkey to say, I'm the king. You have the people putting their coats down in palm branches saying, we recognize you're the king. And then what they say, uh, they quote Psalm 118. And we have to understand what is the significance of that? Well, that this is another messianic prophecy that, that they would basically saying, we believe that Jesus, you are the one fulfilling this prophecy that anticipated the coming deliverer. So all of that takes me to another question that we have to ask. So did the people here trust in Jesus as the Messiah, the Son of God, the Savior who came to take away the sins of the world? No, by no means. This is all superficial. Uh, We know that the, the shouts of acclaim here will turn into shouts of crucify him literally days from this. Uh, they were good. The people were good with Jesus being a king if that meant he was there to take on Rome and to liberate them from Rome. They still had an idea of a political, uh, perhaps a military leader in when they thought of, of the Messiah. But soon after this, we're going to see that Jesus does not live up to their desires, their expectations, uh, their definition, and that's when they're going to start turning on him. Uh, they're going to feel betrayed. They're probably going to feel foolish because of their misunderstanding, not because of any. Jesus had been clear about this from day one, but their hardness of heart, their blindness, they're going to turn on him. So did they trust in him? By no means. Uh, we know that the majority of these people would not have followed him, um, it did not before this, would not after this, at least initially, uh, they would be among those rejecting Jesus. And I mean, certainly there is, this is, this is always one of those elements that is really interesting in this story where you see this, this interaction here, and then you see the people later all rejecting Jesus as well. You have people shouting, crucify him. You know, there is a lot of, there's a lot of debate about who exactly are these two groups. Are they the same group? Are they not? And the reality is, is there's probably a mix of mix of people. Certainly the people who were his genuine disciples who just didn't get it, they probably were not part of the group shouting crucify him later. Yeah, <laughs> um, they, they but, were probably scratching their head and, and you know, they were distraught and so forth. Yeah. Yeah. yeah hiding, hiding the way that, uh, that Peter was um, at that point as well. And so there is, there is just that, that reality that we want to, we want to address don't assume that everyone in the crowd that's shouting for joy and is one of Jesus' disciples. Sometimes people just get caught up in the yeah. heat of the moment. Yeah. And so they'd heard about Jesus. They thought he was really cool. So there you go. <laughs> um, so there's that aspect of it. The second thing that we should, um, that is always an interesting thing to think about is, is um, how many people were there? And so... There are there are some folks who um, I remember in a church that was not particularly healthy that uh, that 
we visited for a period of time uh, back in the back about ten years ago. The the person who was the pastor there, he was trying to suggest that that basically the group that was shouting for for joy was basically twelve people. So and it's like this is significantly more than that. <laughs> so um, if it's enough that the religious leaders get concerned the that were were freaking out about this and saying hey can you shut this down um that that's more that's more than 12 people it's more than 120 people as well so that is so but we don't know the number because it just doesn't tell us so when you're thinking about this passage don't worry too much about that but it is just a fun thing to wonder about now a very important thing for us to be considering is something that we see in verses 41 through 44, which happens right after he comes in. Jesus is weeping over Jerusalem, and he prophesies this this very doom and gloom message that is really, really troubling um, here because he's saying, would you have paid attention? I wish you had paid attention is what he's saying. Listen, you ha- you've had so many chances to listen. But now this is going to happen. And, it, and he's saying, Jerusalem is going to be sacked. It's going to be destroyed. Um, he, is, he is telling them of what is going to happen when they have their final uprising against Jerusalem. Rome in AD 70. So about 30, 30, 40 years down the road from where we are right now in the, in the storyline um, ish um, because as we know, dates are kind of fuzzy. <laughs> so on, on some of this stuff. So, um, so he's, he's telling them that this is what's going to happen in the short term and that, but he's also saying in the long term, he's warning them of the adversity that they're going to face because of rejecting him outright. And when you look at this, it's tempting to read this as a condemnation of, of people who are opposed to Christ, which, for the record, is all of humanity apart from those who trust in Jesus. <laughs> um, so, because we all love to sin more than we love God. So, um, so, but instead what we see here is, is we see this, this burden that he feels for them, that he, that he is broken for them. And we're going to see him later broken for them um, in a few days. So this is an important thing to think about. And, uh, and in terms of how we, we consider lost people in our world today. Yeah. Um, and we'll get to, we'll get to that in a little bit. But we've got one other thing that we want to talk yeah, to first. It wouldn't be a, a podcast episode for, with us if we didn't get ahead of ourselves, though. Absolutely. Uh, yeah, I think the last big question here is you move on in the narrative and you get to the cleansing of, of the temple. Um, and why did Jesus do this? Now, first of all, we won't get into it for time and other reasons, but there's uh, some interesting discussion whether there was one temple cleansing or two. Um we see it recorded in Gospels early, at the beginning of his ministry. We see it here at the end. And so some people believe it's two. Others would, would believe it was one that is placed strategically, again, according to the, the need of the Gospel writers to, to 
present what they want to present. Um, regardless, I think the question is, why did Jesus cleanse the temple? What was going on here? And, and we know that he is pointing toward the corrupted worship that's happening. You had people that were exploiting others, uh, hindering them from worship, exploiting them, uh, their need to worship and so forth. And he has no patience for this. He has no stomach for this. Uh, what this is doing is it is reminding us, I believe Mark, Luke, at least by placing it here. Again, if, 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 there, if this is when it happened in chronology, then it makes total sense. If Luke is inserting it here because it's, it's helping the narrative that he's telling here, the point, either way we get to the same thing that we see that he is saying, look, you just saw people who appeared as they were worshiping Jesus as he entered, but be careful because worship is not what it should be. We're not seeing full and sincere worship here in the temple. You didn't see it just now. Imagine reading this for the first time. You would think this is like the credits are about to roll after this. This is the moment Jesus, he finally okay. broke through. The people finally came to him. Okay, roll credits. And I think this is where Luke is saying, it, be careful. Things are not always as they appear to be. So you're right, Aaron. While not every voice that called out crucify or that called out praise called out crucify him likely, but many probably did. And we know the ones who were praising him, most of them probably were not genuine. They were not sincere. That was not heartfelt worship of Jesus as the son of God. So that's in part. And then also part of this is looking toward um, the reason of what would follow. Jesus is about to be rejected after this. um, And, uh, the, the discipline that the people would experience because of rejecting him, what he just mentioned as he wept over Jerusalem, this is helping us remember why. Because the people were corrupt, because they had taken their eyes off of, of pleasing God and bringing him glory. They were being selfish. They were being sinful. They were in sin. So this really helps bridge, if we will, what we just read about with what's going to be happening after this the rest of the week. I love the fact that Luke put in that last verse in this passage, um, verse uh, or last two verses, the 47 and 48. Again, read them earlier. I'm going to read them again because they're just so they're they're just helpful for us to remember. Every day Jesus was teaching in the temple. The chief priests, the scribes and the leaders of the people were looking for a way to kill him. But they couldn't find a way to do it because all the people were captivated by what they heard. Just think, just think about that, that, that while all of this is going on after he's cleansed the temple, after he's, after he has pointed out the fact that worship has become so corrupted that, um, that all of the, that all of these re all of these realities are in place or are in, and in play here that he gives us this summary of what we're going to see throughout the rest of the week. And it's Jesus was teaching and captivating everybody. And every single day, all of the religious leaders, all of the people who from a worldly perspective were very important, were trying to figure out how to kill him. That's, mind-blowing. 
And it just and it really leads to really leads to the one of the key questions, um, and really the question that drives how um, how we framed this this episode and this discussion, um, which is part of how we encourage people, how we what kind of encouragement we have to disciple others, which is this question of what's our perspective of Jesus and how does Jesus challenge our perspective of Him. Because that's what we see all throughout this passage, right? We see him positioning himself as the king, but constantly saying, I'm not the king like you think I am. I'm not the king you want, but I'm the king that you that you need. And the people resisting that and some outright rejecting it and some attacking him because of it. And so we need to think about how we consider how we look at look at him in light of that do we see jesus for who he really is or do we want or or do we see him only as we want him to be are we remaking jesus in um in our image for lack of a better way of saying it um is is the way we worship jesus in light of who he is or is it according to our preferences and our desires? Is it about us or is it about him? Hey, you know, Aaron, and I think that's a, this is a, not a one time. I mean, it is a one time in, in a sense of when we trust in Christ and are regenerate, become regenerate. I mean, it, there is a one time understanding and, and, and declaration there in a way. But really living out our faith, this is a day by day question we have to ask ourselves because I think we have to always fight against our natural um, tendency to force Jesus into our perspective, into our will, into our whims. Uh, and so it's not a one time. It's like, okay, yeah, I trusted in Jesus uh, when I was 11 years old and therefore I recognize him as, as who he really is and, and I'm good to go. No, this is a day by day, minute by minute perhaps. Um, are we contorting Jesus into our uh, our shaped whole, or are we understanding who He is? I, I think the second major question, again, this is another day by day, um, or or guidance rather that we can offer to somebody is how do we view the lost people? You mentioned this earlier, Aaron. I think it's really important. We see Jesus here giving us an example of of what to do. Again, we follow Him. He knows he's going to be rejected, but what is he doing? He's weeping. And I agree with you, Aaron. I don't, I, while somebody might want to try to read uh, verses 41 through 44 as a condemnation, I don't see it there. I, I see it as compassion. I see Jesus, he's, he's sincerely broken because he loves people. He cared for these people, even if they were going to reject him and he knew it. And so for us, the question is really important. How do we view lost people around us. Are they opponents to defeat? I think that's the posture a lot of people in the American church at least will have quite a bit. Um, Are they simpletons who just don't get it? I see this one too, where we think, you know, we start to become arrogant and puffed up because we know the truth. We understand how things are. You simpletons, you just miss it. Both of those are to be rejected. They're heartless. 
we need to fight to see others as people in need of God's mercy and, and grace. We need to weep over them. When we read the news and we see the world acting like the world because they are the world, they are sinful, they are unregenerate. When we read headlines and our natural posture is, is one of these people, life would be so much better if it weren't for these people or whatever the case may be, we're missing it. We should weep mm -hmm. over them. Now, there is a time to take a stand and, and we need to be bold at times and speak truth and, and stand in the gap. There is a time and place for that. But my belief is I think we do that more than we weep. And I think we should weep more uh, because the weeping will drive us to the point where we can take that stand with the right heart. There can be firmness with love still. What I see from the church a lot these days is firmness without love. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's a good way to describe it. And it's something that really should, it really should convict us, I think. I mean, it's, it's because honestly, vitriol is easier. Yeah. And... Compassion is hard. Yeah. Like, I know that's a super simplistic way of saying it, but compassion is really, really hard because it means that you can't just put someone in, in a generic villain box. Yeah. You have to recognize that they're people. And Jesus, even when he, even when it was people who were seeking every day to figure out a way to kill him was still showing compassion. Yep. And I think you and I talk about this before we start recording. It's one of our common conversations. It just, we, we see the seep into the church with as well. It's not just, you know, we, we should expand this. It's not just how we see people are lost. It's how we view people who are in a different theological tribe or different camp um, believers, but they don't quite do what we want them to do or so forth. And we see this seeping over, don't we? We see we it's easier to paint with a broad brush and just get angry and so forth than really fight to try to understand and get, extend grace and give people the benefit. Think the best of people. Um, I, that's what I would you know, want us in the church to do. And, and you and I are both guilty of this at times. I, I don't want anybody listening thinking that we are coming across as, oh, we got this all figured out. We're perfect in this. No, we struggle with this too. Um, yeah. But I think we as God's people have got to work at letting the Holy Spirit do a work in us to humble us. goes back to Jesus riding on this donkey, humility, that we need to be humbled as well and recognize that we can take a stand for what we believe is right, but we have to understand there are other perspectives so often. There are certain things, non-negotiable, the core issues of the gospel that we don't hedge on. But there's so much more that is not as clear-cut and is not a first right priority um, that we need to extend grace and say, I think you're wrong on this, Aaron. I believe A, B, C. You believe X, Y, Z, but I still can believe that you love Jesus, that you are gospel-centered and advocate X, Y, Z. Even though I think you're wrong, you think I'm wrong, that's okay. Let's go get some coffee. Brian, I think that's a good place for us to wrap this up because you know what? I could use some coffee. <laughs> there you go. So, uh, <laughs> so um, and that also leads into our next, into next week's uh, discussion from, uh, from this, because we're going to talk about how to disagree like quest Christians. 
So uh, until then, thanks for hanging out and talking through this. And thank you all for listening to today's episode of the podcast. If you enjoyed it, please do leave a sincere five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts or whatever platform you use to listen to the show. And for more resources to help you focus your ministry on the gospel, please visit gospelproject.com. 